Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message about our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hits lectures, including quick hits, cleft lip and palate. This is a high yield lecture series taken from facts tested over the last five to eight years on our in-service examination. Rosie, right. take us away. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. So anatomy of the muscles in the palate, levator veli palatini passes posterior to the hamulus and creates a muscular sling. It runs through the palate and it elevates the palate. That is the levator veli palatini. The palatoglossus runs through the anterior tonsillar pillar to depress the palate. Tensor veli palatini is innervated by the medial pterygoid nerve, part of cranial nerve 5, and it descends from the base of the skull adjacent to the eustachian tube, courses around the hamulus of the pterygoid, and forms a broad aponeurosis with the contralateral muscle within the anterior soft palate. The tensor veli palatini contributes to eustachian tube pressure modulation. The palatal pharyngeus is responsible for controlling velopharyngeal sphincter by controlling the size, shape, and position. The superior constructor controls the pharyngeal closure during swallowing and speech. So incidence of cleft open palate is often tested, and these are just numbers that you kind of have to memorize. If you have one affected sibling with an isolated cleft lip, you have a 2.5% risk of having a cleft lip. Uh, one affected sibling with unilateral cleft lip and palate, you have a 4.2% of your next kid having that. If you have one sibling with bilateral cleft lip and palate, you have a 6.7% risk of your next child having that. If you have two affected siblings by cleft lip and palate, you have a 10% risk of your next child having that. If only the parents have it, you have a 3 to 4.7%, so 3 to 5% of the children having a cleft lip or palate. And then if both a parent and a sibling have a cleft, the next child has a 17% risk of having the cleft. Cleft lip and palate has a higher incidence than cleft palate alone. There's a male predominance for cleft lip and cleft palate, also an Asian predominance. And cleft lip and palate has less syndromic association than cleft palate alone. Some of the congenital anomalies that are associated with cleft lip and palate so Vanderwood syndrome can be associated with cleft lip with or without a palate. It is an autosomal dominant disease. So you have a 50% risk of your offspring having it if a parent has it. And it can present as lip pits. That's a really common tested fact. So Vanderwood syndrome, lip pits. And then you can have a bilateral complete cleft lip and palate or any variation of the cleft lip and palate. Vanderwood syndrome is associated with the gene IRF6. Right, Rosie. So those are two things that are commonly tested, IRF6 and also lip pits. And the way it will present is it'll be an incidence question. So it'll say the parents come in for genetic counseling, the father has a history of a cleft lip and palate. And so you're starting to think like 4% risk for cleft lip and palate. And then you see like on examination, he has lip pit. So that automatically goes to autosomal dominant 50%. And so you just kind of have to keep a close eye on those kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. All right, so 22Q11 or velocardiofacial syndrome has overt or submucous clefting of the palate, generalized hypotonia, cardiac abnormalities, and hypocalcemia. You have to have a high suspicion of this syndrome in children with cardiac abnormalities and cleft palate. 
and they also have a distinct facial appearance. So 22Q11 or velocardiofacial syndrome has an elongated face with a wide nose, small ears, and lower facial muscle tone. This is detected. The gene associated with it is a deletion of 22Q11, obviously. And these children often have a higher incidence overall of BPI, so velopharyngeal insufficiency, due to decreased oropharyngeal tone and learning difficulties. Uh, PR Roban sequence is another congenital anomaly associated with cleft lip and palate. They'll often also have glossoptosis, retigenia, and respiratory distress. That's right, Roseanne. Remember that this is not a genetic abnormality. It is a sequence of events. It starts with retrogenia, glossotosis, and that prevents the palate from closing. And so you get wide U-shaped palate and then breathing abnormalities, respiratory mm -hmm. distress. Initial management of these children often includes placing the neonate in the prone position. Because that helps get the tongue mm -hmm. out of the way. Um, Wardenberg syndrome is associated with a white forelock in the hair and sensory neural hearing loss, as well as cleft open palate. So going through kind of the keywords of all of our congenital anomalies, Vanderwood syndrome has lip pits, it's autosomal dominant, and the gene is IRF6. 22Q11 um, has cleft hypotonia, cardiac abnormalities, and hypocalcemia. And Pierre-Robin sequence has glossoptosis, clefts, retrogenia, and respiratory distress. And Wardenburg, um, the keywords are white forelock of the hair and sensory neural hearing loss as well as cleft. So next we'll talk about cleft lip. The lip forms at about five to six weeks gestation. And there are different types of cleft lips that are formed from failure of fusion of different prominences. So a median cleft lip results from failed fusion of the medial nasal prominences. A unilateral cleft lip, which is what we normally see, results from failed fusion of the medial nasal prominence and maxillary prominence. The lateral nasal processes form the nasal ala, which is frequently tested, and the medial nasal prominence forms the nasal tip, columella, philtrum, and premaxilla. The front and nasal process forms the forehead, bridge of the nose, and in the root of the nose, and we're frequently asked about that as well. An oblique facial cleft results from failure of fusion of the lateral nasal prominence and maxillary prominence. And then a lateral oral commissure cleft is produced by a failed fusion of the mandibular and maxillary prominences. So that is a lot of words, but a, for a common unilateral cleft lip, just remember that is failed fusion from the medial nasal prominence and maxillary prominence. There are different cleft lip techniques. Commonly is the rotation advancement or Millard. Um, there is the Tennyson repair, straight line repair, bilateral cleft lip repair, starting with the rotation advancement, the complication that this can cause is a short upper lip. And if you think about it, the non-cleft side is rotated and then the cleft side is advanced. There are different flaps that we are tested on. The C flap is the columellar flap, and this is made from the non-cleft side to rotate into the columella and lengthen it. There is the D flap or the ailer base flap, the M flap, which is medially based flap to form rotation and the L-flap, which is a medially based flap of mucosa from the surface of the lateral lip element. And this is used to line the lateral nasal vault between internal mucosa and hair-bearing skin. Complications of a Tennyson repair include elongated lip, straight line repair, blunts, cubits, bow. And then when you think about a bilateral cleft lip repair, this often results in a wide filtrum. And then when you think about scar correction, you wanna aim that generally 12 months or later like we would for anything else. The nasal deformity is something we talk about often, and this is tested on, so you'll have to remember it. But if you think about the nose of a child with a cleft lip, 
the inferior border of the bony septum is deviated to the cleft side, while the anterior nasal spine is deviated to the non-cleft side. There is decreased sagittal projection of the piriform sinus and dental alveolar arch, so maxillary hypoplasia. The ala on the cleft side is lateral, inferior, and posterior. Lateral, inferior, posterior. The premaxilla is rotated and projected outward, particularly in a bilateral cleft, and the lateral maxillary element is collapsed and retropositioned. The columella will be short. And then lip deformities, so the filtrum termination of the orbicularis oris muscle in the lateral lip is shortened at the margin of the cleft, and the muscle will insert on the alar wing. The abbey flap or lip switch flap is used to create a functional filtrum in patients who have tightness of the upper lip following a cleft lip repair or whistle deformity. It is pedicled on the submucosal labial artery of the lower lip. And like any other pedicle, it can be divided at two to four weeks. And remember that the normal filtrum is 10 to 15 millimeters wide. All right. Timing of treatment in these patients for nasoalveolar molding, you'll want to apply it shortly after birth. Cleft lip will be repaired at three to six months. Cleft palate repairs are performed at nine to 12 months, and then you'll do alveolar bone grafting. Nasoalveolar molding, um, the goal of this is to reposition and approximate the alveolar segments and reshape the nasal cartilage. It is a pre-surgical technique that corrects columellar height, especially in the bilateral cleft lip and palate. Talking a little bit more about cleft palate. So this is produced by a failure of fusion of the medial and lateral palatine processes in week seven to eight of gestation. So cleft palate happens at week seven to eight of gestation. You can classify these with VO classification. So VO1 has an incomplete cleft of the soft palate. VO2, the cleft involves the soft and the hard palate. VO3 is a complete unilateral cleft lip and palate. And then VO4 is a complete bilateral cleft lip and palate. If someone has an isolated cleft palate, they carry a 50% risk of other congenital anomalies. In cleft patients, the levator veli palatini is clefted and courses sagittal in an anterior-posterior direction instead of the transverse direction. And it attaches to the posterior edge of the hard palate. So this is repositioned when you do a cleft palate repair. 90% of kids with cleft palates have chronic infections and effusions of the middle ear. So this can result in hearing loss. Remember that repair of the levator during cleft palate repair can help improve eustachian tube function. Right. So this is something to clarify. So oftentimes they're asked, what is the incidence of effusion with those with a cleft palate? And it's 90%. The tensor veli palatini is responsible for pressure modulation, but in a cleft palate repair, it is repair of the levator that helps improve eustachian tube function. And that was tested. Techniques for repairing a cleft palate include the von Langenbeck the Vowardle-Kilner, Bardox 2-flap, and the furlough double opposing Z-plasty. This attempts to reestablish the normal anatomy. So you repair the uvula, the levator palatini, you repair the nasal lining, and release any abnormal attachments of the tensor veli palatini. In a submucous cleft palate, you'll often see a bifid uvula and notching of the hard palate, and a midline thinning of the posterior palate, which is called a zona pellucida. And it's formed by the two parallel bulges of the levator muscle cleft, with the white area in between them. Transillumination can occur due to an absent levator muscle sling. So this can also present as a velopharyngeal insufficiency after tonsillectomy. 10 to 15% of patients will demonstrate VPI and the rest are asymptomatic. Treatment of VPI includes restoration of normal anatomy with palatoplasty, typically in a furlough technique. 
and the levator will still be collected. In adolescents, patients may have speech complications, so you should assess for an oronasal fistula, any anterior hard palate defects, and pharyngeal wall motion. Treatment of adolescent speech complications may include fistula repair, premaxillary setback, pharyngoplasty, and alveolar bone grafting, depending on the defects. The alveolar bone grafting is meant to stabilize the dental arch. This should all be performed prior to Lefort 1, which usually happens in late adolescence. In terms of the dental arch, there is a high prevalence of dental anomalies with the cleft lip and palate. Agenesis is the most common anomaly found in 50% of patients. Most commonly, the affected tooth is the permanent lateral incisor on the cleft side. The second most frequent anomaly is supernumerary teeth. An unrepaired alveolar cleft can reveal a posterior crossbite of maxillary dentition due to collapse of the maxillary arch. Alveolar bone grafting, like we discussed, is used to stabilize the dental arch. It is performed to support tooth health for permanent canines before the canine has fully erupted. Too early grafting is bad for tooth growth. It should be performed during transitional dentition. And it usually begins first with palatal expansion and then grafting. The alveolar bone grafting allows for bone support for subsequent placement of endosseous titanium implants. The bone stock required for these implants is usually 10 to 15 millimeters. And typically we use an iliac bone, crest, cancellous bone, rather than demineralized bone matrix. The disadvantages of using the autologous bone include the donor site and the failure rates between these two are pretty equivalent. Like we discussed, patients will frequently have an absence of teeth um, within the alveolar cleft or teeth that may be, may be abnormal and require removal. The lateral incisors are the most commonly affected within the cleft. All right, phalopharyngeal insufficiency. This is a huge topic that is makes up a large portion of what we're tested on for cleft lip and palate. This is the inability to completely close the phalopharyngeal sphincter and is diagnosed on nasoendoscopy. nasoendoscopy. Signs include hypernasal speech, and when you think about the valopharyngeal port, it is bordered by the valum anteriorly, the lateral pharyngeal walls, and posterior pharyngeal wall. Based on the type of closure pattern is how you will repair this defect. So poor lateral wall motion or a coronal closure pattern lends itself to treatment with a sphincter pharyngeoplasty. And this brings the lateral walls more centrally. A sphincter pharyngeoplasty rotates the posterior tonsil pillars and narrows the valopharyngeal sphincter. This includes harvest of the palatal pharyngeus muscle, which is commonly tested. And that muscle is supplied through cranial nerve 11. There is less nasal obstruction than the pharyngeal flap. So this is less of a risk to get hyponasality. Poor central wall motion or a sagittal closure pattern lends itself to treatment with a pharyngeal flap. This is harvested as a superiorly based flap, typically and the layers include the mucosa, superior constrictor muscle, the buccal pharyngeal flap or the pretracheal fascia and interior prevertebral fascia is left down. So you do not harvest that with it. And that is the deep fascia that surrounds the cervical column and musculature. It is a superior constrictor muscle flap. Shortened palatal length with good palatal elevation. This is indicative of interior placement of the levator valley palatini. And this can be treated with a conversion to a furlough palatoplasty as the Z plasty will lengthen the palate. This is particularly good for patients who have concurrent sleep apnea as a pharyngoplasty may worsen sleep apnea. It is used frequently with submucous cleft palates or following conventional pushback palatoplasty. And preoperative velopharyngeal gap determined by preop nasoendoscopy is the most important determinant of velar competence after a furlough palatoplasty. So how much is that gap? 
a very small central gap after adenoidectomy can be treated with palatal soft tissue augmentation alone. And if you have poor wall movement or hypotonia in general, which remember is associated with a 22 Q11, sometimes despite attempts can still have VPI. And at this point you will consider use of a palatal elevator to push up the posterior soft palate as treatment will not produce effect. A palatal obturator can be used to block oronasal fistula. So that is the difference between a palatal elevator and palatal obturator. And then one of the complications of treatment of velopharyngeal insufficiency is hyponasal speech. And this describes the sound production when not enough air gets through the velopharyngeal sphincter resulting in a muffled nasal voice. And this, like I said, can result from pharyngoplasty, but you should evaluate for speech abnormalities and obstructive sleep apnea. So you want to get a polysomnography after this. Sleep apnea can be associated with severe mid-face hypoplasia or a pharyngoplasty and can lead to obstructive sleep apnea as confirmed, like I said, on polysomnogram. Initial treatment is with a trial of CPAP. And then a Lafort one may be performed in adolescence, but in children, this can result in permanent injury to the unerupted teeth. Tracheostomy is a treatment method that will bypass the mid-face level of obstruction. And this is used if all other options fail and the patient has immediate respiratory concerns. Maxillary hypoplasia is appreciated by an acute SNA angle. Normal SNA angle is 80 to 82 and less is hypoplasia. An overjet describes the distance between the maxillary and mandibular incisors in the horizontal plane when in centric occlusion. Frequently, maxillary hypoplasia will lead to class three occlusion. And we'll talk about the classes of occlusion. So this is based on the relationship from the mesiobuccal cusp of the maxillary first molar to the buccal groove of the mandibular first molar. Class one is normal occlusion. Class two is an overbite. Class three is an underbite. This is when the mesiobuccal cusp of the maxillary first molar lies distal or posterior to the buccal groove of the mandibular first molar. And like the opposite would be true for class two, right? So the mesiobuccal mm -hmm. cusp of the maxillary first molar would lie proximal or anterior to the buccal groove of the mandibular first molar, which would be an overbite. Skeletal maturity can be assessed via cephalometric x-ray when planning for any sort of procedure to correct maxillary hypoplasia. A Lafort one can be used, which advances the maxilla 10, up to 10 millimeters. This can result in changes, including mid-facial projection and fullness, increased upper lip fullness, decreased upper lip height, decreased depth of nasal labia folds, increased angle of nasal labia folds, and increased tooth show. If you need advancement of more than 10 millimeters, you can use maxillary distraction after Lafort one. Um, and again, this is used for maxillary hypoplasia. This allows for maintenance of the current velopharyngeal anatomy. A mandibular setback can also be used for maxillary hypoplasia or a sagittal split osteotomy. And this is indicated when SNB is greater than 77, indicating a class three occlusion, which is an underbite. And then the miscellaneous topic we have for this episode is that the blood supply to the tongue is in the ventral third of the tongue and is provided by the paired lingual arteries. Asymmetric bilateral cleft lip should be repaired simultaneously for best outcomes. So you want to repair both at the same time. That was a question last year, I think. Great, Rosie. So this was a lot to go over just to talk a little bit about um, maxillary hypoplasia. So this is tested on frequently and we will discuss this in later talks, but like she said, a Lafort one can advance up to 10 millimeters. If you need greater then you start thinking about, about maxillary distraction and you have to take into account both the SNA angle and SNB. So if SNA on only is off or less, 
than 80 to 82, then you know that you're going to be advancing the mid face with a Lafort or maxillary distraction. If the SMB angle is greater than normal, then you know that you need a mandibular setback in combination with a Lafort if the SNA angle is again low. And then finally, we are tested often on the changes associated with a Lafort one advancement. And so you need to remember that the things that we really talk about increased upper lip fullness, like she said, decreased upper lip height, and then decreased depth of the nasolabial fold. So it actually can make you appear more youthful, which is an increase in the nasolabial fold angle. All right. Thank you for attending our quick hits on cleft lip and palate. We'll be back soon with another quick hits for you. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.